Welcome to another episode of Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you here as we begin week number 13 uh, from March 27th through April 2nd here. Um, During that week, reading through the New Testament, studying the scriptures together, and seeing what God has to teach us in in this portion of his word. And, um, And so here we are. We're in Luke chapter 17 this week, going through chapter 21, really in the heart of uh, Luke's gospel before those uh, climactic last three chapters, 22, 23, and 24. Here, um, uh, really, uh, you know, uh, trying to understand who Jesus is and and uh, who he is as we as we wrestle and continue to to look at the Gospels and see all sorts of different angles, don't we? Um, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and and really then John as well. Um, all these different angles of the one story, the one truth, and the facts and the history of this person, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. And so here we're in John, in uh, Luke, excuse me, not John, Luke chapter uh, 17. Um, here, Jesus, we remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to lay down his life for us. And he's continuing to instruct uh, his disciples, uh, continuing to instruct them. Uh, it speaks to them about temptations to sin. He's healing people. He gives parables to his disciples about prayer and, and about the Pharisee and the tax collector, reminding them of what salvation really looks like. Um, he welcomes the little children uh, to himself. Then we get in uh, John or Luke chapter 19 with uh, Jesus here with Zacchaeus, that wonderful story where Zacchaeus is up in a tree looking to, at Jesus and, and Jesus welcomes him and calls him uh, to himself um, in, this, in this story. Uh, Jesus continuing uh, as he gets into the triumphal entry here in chapter 19. Uh, comes into the city uh, to much acclaim uh, by the people all around him. Uh, But as he comes to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus begins to weep over the city because he knows, uh, he knows uh, in his divinity, of course, he knows what will happen. He knows these people are going to reject him. And he sees sees their hearts, that their hearts are not set upon trusting him for their, for for the salvation of their sins, um, and so he says here in, ver- in chapter 19, uh, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Uh, he comes into the temple and cleanses it. We see the, the stories, how he's challenged by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, the religious leaders are here trying to oppose Jesus, uh, trying to throw him off guard. But Jesus is so stable, so composed, he doesn't get thrown off guard. Um, that's the wonderful thing about our Savior is his strength and his composure gives us composure, even in our weakness and in our sufferings. And then in chapter 21, we really have Luke's version of uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, this uh, thing that is found in Matthew uh, chapter 24 through 25. Uh, Mark also gives a uh, version of this in his account in the Gospel uh, of Mark, and then here in Luke chapter 21, we have the similar uh, uh, description of Jesus foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, 
um, uh, signs of his uh, coming. And uh, needless to say, there is a discussion about what all of these verses exactly mean and how to interpret them. But overall, we do get the general sense that Jesus here is reminding his disciples of uh, the fact that, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He's calling them to be aware and to watch. And uh, he's he's uh, talking about his coming. And there's, um, you know, we could talk a lot about the diversity of interpretations uh, of these passages. And uh, in, in a sense, that's the nature of these passages, uh, because they're, they're not as plain as perhaps other passages of Scripture are. But, but nonetheless instructive for the first disciples um, and for us as well. And that wraps out our reading for this week, Luke chapter 17 uh, through chapter 21. So a few things let's think about as we're reading through the New Testament this week, as we're thinking about these things, what can we learn? What can we grasp from uh, some of what uh, Jesus is doing and teaching what Luke is here writing to us um, to help us to wrestle with who is this Jesus of Nazareth and, and how does he argue uh, for, for who this man is and why we should believe in him? Well, the first thing I want to point out is based off of uh, the, the healing of the ten lepers in Luke chapter 17. Uh, Jesus is here, um, you know, he's on his way, passing along, we're told, between Samaria and Galilee. He enters a village and he's met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. Uh, Jesus heals all 10, but only one of them comes back. And that, of course, is uh, this, this one who's a foreigner, who's a Samaritan. He praises God for what's happened. And Jesus tells him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So what are some things that we can pull from this passage? I want to quote from J.C. Ryle, who's been so helpful for us in his expository thoughts on the Gospels. Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, has this to say about this, this section of Scripture. He says, let us mark firstly in this passage how earnestly men can cry for help when they feel their need of it. We read that as our Lord entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers. It is difficult to conceive any condition more thoroughly miserable than that of men afflicted with leprosy. They were cast out from society. They were cut off from all communion with their fellows. The men described in the passage before us appear to have been truly sensible of their wretchedness. They stood afar off, but they did not stand idly doing nothing. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They felt acutely the deplorable state of their bodies. They found words to express their feelings. They cried earnestly for relief when a chance of relief appeared in sight. The conduct of the tin lepers is very instructive. It throws light on a most important subject in practical Christianity, which we can never understand too well. That subject is prayer. How is it that many never pray at all? How is it that many others are content to repeat a form of words, but never pray with their hearts? How is it that dying men and women with souls to be lost or saved can know so little of real, hearty, business-like prayer? The answer to these questions is short and simple. The bulk of mankind have no sense of sin. They do not feel their spiritual disease. They are not conscious that they are lost and guilty and hanging over the brink of hell. When a man finds out his soul's ailment, he soon learns to pray. Like the leper, he finds words to express his need. He cries for help. How is it again that many true believers often pray so coldly? What is the reason that their prayers are so feeble and wandering and lukewarm as they frequently are? The answer once more is very plain. 
Their sense of need is not so deep as it ought to be. They are not truly alive to their own weakness and helplessness, and so they do not cry fervently for mercy and grace. Let us remember these things. Let us seek to have a constant and abiding sense of our real necessities. If saints could only see their souls as the ten afflicted lepers saw their bodies, they would pray far better than they do. Let us mark secondly in these verses how help meets men in the path of obedience. We are told that when the lepers cried to our Lord, he he only replied, Go show yourselves to the priests. He did not touch them and command their disease to depart. He prescribed no medicine, no washing, no use of outward material means. Yet healing power accompanied the words which he spoke. Relief met the afflicted company as soon as they obeyed his command. It came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. A fact like this is doubtless intended to teach us knowledge. It shows us the wisdom of simple, childlike obedience to every word which comes from the mouth of Christ. It does not become us to stand still and reason and doubt when our Master's commands are plain and unmistakable. If the lepers had acted in this way, they would never have been healed. We must read the Scriptures diligently. We must try to pray. We must attend on the public means of grace. All these are duties which Christ requires at our hands, and to which, if we love life, we must attend without asking vain and critical questions. It is just in the path of unhesitating obedience that Christ will meet us and bless us. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. John seven seventeen. Let us mark lastly in these verses what a rare thing is thankfulness. We are told that of all the ten lepers whom Christ healed, there was only one who turned back and gave him thanks. The words that fell from our Lord's lips upon this occasion are very solemn. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? The lesson before us is humbling, heart-searching, and deeply instructive. The best of us are far too like the nine lepers. We are, far more, we are more ready to pray than to praise, and more disposed to ask God for what we have not than to thank Him for what we have. Murmurings and complainings and discontent abound on every side of us. Few indeed are found to be found, few indeed are to be found who are not continually hiding their mercies under a bushel and setting their needs and trials on a hill. These things ought not to be so, but all who know the church and the world must confess that they are true. The widespread thanklessness of Christians is the disgrace of our day. It is a plain proof of our little humility. Let us pray for a daily thankful spirit. It is the spirit which God loves and delights to honor. David and Paul were eminently thankful men. It is the spirit which has marked all the brightest saints in every age of the church. McShane and Bickersteth and Haldane Stewart were always full of praise. It is the spirit which is the very atmosphere of heaven. Angels and just men made perfect are always blessing God. It is the spirit which is the source of happiness on earth. If we, were, if we would be anxious for nothing, we must make our requests known to God, not only with prayer and supplication, but with thanksgiving, Philippians 4, 6. Above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, guilt, and undeserving. This, after all, is the true secret of a thankful spirit. It is the man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality he deserves nothing but hell. This is the man who will be daily blessing and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well excepting upon a root of deep humility.
That's the end of J.C. Ryle's section there on this passage of Scripture, and it's very helpful, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed this, and this is something I've noticed uh, reading through J.C. Ryle in his reading in the Gospels, is how often he pulls uh, from the Gospels instruction on prayer. And I think that's very helpful because even this passage of Scripture right here, which is about these ten lepers crying out to Jesus— um, I don't know that you and I initially would have thought this is applicable to prayer, but it is, isn't it? I think it's quite obvious, actually. Here's, a, here's a, some people who are asking Jesus, speaking and addressing him and asking him to do something for them, which only he can do. Well, what more is prayer than that? And, and I think that's really helpful for us to, to maybe as we read the Bible, not only to pull what J.C. Ryle talked about here, which is to know our need and to, to see how they heard the answer, right? And we, we read the Bible, we know the pathway of obedience and to do it right away, um, but also to be thankful in our prayer lives. So to pull those things, I think is very helpful um, for us uh, on prayer, as Ryle already instructed us and gave us some very uh, good instruction on, but but also to notice that as we read the New Testament and and particularly the gospel accounts, to see people's requests of Jesus and interactions with Jesus as models or uh, examples of really what it is to pray to Christ. Um, Do you read the gospel accounts that way? Do you read them with looking at this man as looking to Christ and asking him for this? And this is what an interaction with Jesus Christ looks like. And for us, we don't have Christ physically present with us in the room, do we? Now, he is present with us through the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, his special and unique presence is with us. He tells us that I'm with you always, but he communicates with us by the Spirit in the written word of God. And that's where he talks to us through that book by the power of the Spirit opening our minds. The Holy Spirit teaches us those things that are found in the scriptures. And then we respond in prayer. And so that's kind of how the dialogue with us in Christ works now. He's not physically present, but his words and who he is and his person is present and he communicates to us through sacred scripture which is in, which is taken by the spirit the holy spirit making it alive to us and helping us to understand these things and we respond back in prayer and i think that's very helpful for us to recognize our need and and as we as jc rail does so often to see prayer and instruction in prayer found throughout the gospel accounts. And I think that will help us as we read the the gospels to see that, but also help our prayer lives perhaps to enrich it and to deepen it and to grow it. Okay, the next section that I want to talk to you about is found in Luke chapter 18. So the next chapter over, um, and this is a very uh, short section that I want to read to you about, but it's, it's concerning this man, Jesus gives this instruction or this parable about this, uh, between the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the Pharisee is boasting, he, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, he says, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, and he brags about what he does. And then the tax collector stands far off, lifts up his eyes to heaven, beats his breasts, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us and tells his disciples and tells us that it was the latter man, the man who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is that man who is justified, is accepted and welcomed into the presence of God, not the Pharisee. 
Charles Spurgeon has a sermon uh, on this passage, and it's called Confession and Absolution or something like that. And uh, he has this bit to say about whenever this man went home justified. He says this, It does not say that he went to his house having eased his mind. That is true, but more. He went to his house justified. What does that mean? It so happens that the Greek word here used is the one which the apostle Paul always employs to set out that great doctrine of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even the righteousness which is of God by faith. The fact is that the moment the man prayed the prayer, every sin he had ever done was blotted out of God's book, so that it did not stand on the record against him. And more, the moment that prayer was heard in heaven, the man was reckoned to be a righteous man. All that Christ did for him was cast about his shoulders to be the robe of his beauty. That moment all the guilt that he had ever committed himself was washed entirely away and lost forever. When a sinner believes in Christ, his sins positively cease to be. And what is more wonderful, they all, they all cease to be. He says, uh, continues on and, uh, uh, a little bit down and says, They are all swept away in one solitary instant. The crimes of many years, extortions, adulteries, or even murder wiped away in an instant, for you will notice the absolution was instantaneously given. End of quote there. We pray to God, we seek his face, and here is another example of prayer. This man is praying to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and God looks at that man and justifies him, wipes away his sins from the record book. He is accepted and welcomed in, and all of his sins are forgiven, and he is regarded now for the sake of Christ, because he is now in Christ. He is regarded as righteous, as if he had lived the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And so all of these sins, Spurgeon reminds us, are wiped away in an instant. A good reminder to us, isn't it, of justification of what salvation is. Our sins are taken away Uh, Our sins are many, his mercy is more, they are done away with. We are justified because of what Christ has done for us. And now, uh, continuing on this this idea, emphasis upon grace and salvation, Spurgeon has a great sermon on, um, this is Charles Spurgeon again, the the Baptist minister from London in the 1800s. He has a uh, a sermon here called Must He, Must He, question mark. Um, from Luke chapter 19. It's about the story of Zacchaeus now as we move here. Um, and Jesus, right right before this, has reminded us salvation is found by trusting in God's mercy, not by boasting in our achievements. And here in verse uh, Zacchaeus in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 5, it says here, And when Jesus came to the place, uh, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. And Spurgeon has a sermon, which is a question, must he? Uh, and uh, Spurgeon says this about this story, and it's, it's very good. Um, and I think you'll enjoy this. I'm going to kind of give a summary of uh, some points from his sermon. Um, yeah, it's just really good stuff. So he says this. I think this is the only instance Spurgeon writes, or Spurgeon uh, in his sermon here, I think this is the only instance in which our Lord invited himself to anybody's house. He often went when he was invited, but this time, if I may use the expression, he did the inviting himself. Usually, we must seek the Lord if we want to find him. 
To the eye, at any rate, the apparent work of grace goes on in this way. A man begins to cry for mercy. As the blind man who heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by cried to him, You son of David, have mercy on me. But God is so rich in grace that he does not restrict himself to this usual method. Generally, he is found of them that seek him. But sometimes he is found of them that seek him not. Yes, if I tell the whole truth of God, if you go down to the bedrock of actual fact, it is always God who seeks sinners. He always calls them a people who are not a people, and the first movement between God and the sinner is never on the sinner's part, but on God's part. Still, apparently, men begin to pray to God and begin to seek the Lord, and this is the usual order in which salvation comes to them. The prodigal said, I will arise and go to my father, and he arose and came to his father. The blind man cried, Jesus, you son of David, have mercy on me. Our text, however, describes a case which shows the freeness of divine mercy. For although Zacchaeus did not invite Christ to his house, Christ invited himself. Though there was no asking him to be a guest, much less any pressing entreaty on the part of Zacchaeus, Christ pressed himself upon him and said to him, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I reckon that there are some here who are on an errand something like that of Zacchaeus, They want perhaps to see the preacher, which is not nearly as good a thing as wanting to see the preacher's master. Still, that curiosity has brought them into the place where Jesus of Nazareth is known to come, and I do pray that he may find many to whom he will say, Make haste, and come and receive me, for I must stay this very night with you, and dwell in your house and heart at this time and forever. So that's kind of the introduction that Spurgeon gives to this sermon, and you can kind of see where he's going. Um, must he, and why is this? Why must he do this? And uh, points out the fact that Jesus here is inviting himself into the home of Zacchaeus, but really that's what he does to all of us. He invites himself in and saves us. Uh, he's really the one, as Spurgeon points out, um, that it is always God who seeks sinners. He's really the one who, if you go down to the bedrock of actual fact, he's the one who makes the first move, uh, not us. So he goes through and talks about these, uh, these things. He says, first of all, his first point in this sermon here is the divine necessity which pressed upon the Savior, because Jesus here says, I must, uh, today I must stay at your house. And Spurgeon says this, I do not think of this so much as a necessity upon Zacchaeus as upon Christ. In other words, it's Christ who felt this necessity. He says, first of all, it was a necessity of love, a necessity of love. Spurgeon writes this, our Lord Jesus needed to bless somebody. He had seen Zacchaeus and he knew what his occupation was and what his sin was. And he felt that he must bless him. As he looked at him, he felt as a mother does concerning her child when it is ill and she must nurse it, or as you might feel concerning a starving man whom you saw to be ready to expire with hunger, and you felt that you must feed him, or as some men have felt when they have seen a fellow creature drowning and they have plunged in to save him. They did not stop to think. They dared to do the brave deed without a thought, for they felt that they must do it. And and Spurgeon here, in this section here, is highlighting the fact that Jesus felt that he must do this because of his love. The love of Christ is um, what drove him, his love for the Father and his love for sinners. And here, Jesus looks at Zacchaeus. I love what Spurgeon says here. Our Lord needed to bless somebody. 
that shows us the overflowing compassion of Jesus Christ. Um, it is it beats and pulses with compassion and love. It's a holy heart, but it beats with the compassion and the um, the, the the blood of compassion and love. So it was a necessity of love, but secondly, Spurgeon says, it was a necessity of his sovereignty. Spurgeon writes this, Our Lord Jesus Christ seemed to say, I will show these people that when I save men, it is not because they stand well in society, or because they enjoy an excellent reputation, or because there are some beautiful points in their character. I will save this odd man, this Zacchaeus, this despised tax collector. I must have him. He is just the sort of man in whom I can best display the sovereignty of my grace. To this day, men cannot bear that doctrine. Free will suits them very well, but free grace does not. They would not let Christ choose his own wife. I say it with the utmost reverence. I mean, they would not let him have the choice of his own bride, his church, but say that must be left to the will of men. But Christ will have his way, whatever they may say. He has a sacred determination in his blessed heart that he will do as he pleases. And so for that reason, he says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house, end quote. So Jesus Christ does this also to show his sovereignty and his grace. Um, we might expect Jesus to tell somebody who's, who's coming to him begging for mercy or somebody who's a Pharisee who looks good or whoever else, um, Jesus, you should go there. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to show everybody here that I'm the one in charge of, uh, I'm the one who decides uh, to show forth mercy. No one else uh, moves me to it. I am the one who of my own free will shows forth mercy. And it highlights to us again that doctrine which Spurgeon preached, which our Baptist forefathers from the past way back preached, that doctrine of sovereign grace. We have a God, a Savior, who is gracious, but he's also still the Lord, right? And so he shows forth his sovereign grace, his, the fact that he's the one who decides to show mercy to sinners. He's the one who decides um, uh, that he will enter in to their lives, right? Ultimately, remember, we learn it is ultimately God's first move to us that saves us, not our first move to him. In fact, we would never desire him if he did not first seek us. And so here he tells Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. He shows us his love, his sovereignty. Thirdly, it says here, he's a necessity to display the great power of his grace. So Jesus here is wanting to show his great grace. Jesus, Spurgeon says this, Jesus seems to say, I must have Zacchaeus so that the men of the world may see what I can make out of the most unlikely material, how I can take coarse pebbles from the brook and transmute them into diamonds, how I can bedrock my crown with jewels of the first water which were originally, but as the common stones of the street, end quote. So here he's saying uh, that Jesus wants to show forth what he can turn even the worst and most unlikely sinners into. Fourthly, Jesus has this necessity because Zacchaeus was to be his host that day. Um, Jesus is going to, God the Father was going to take care of Christ And he took care of his son by giving him homes to live in during his earthly life here. 
It makes you think about with, um, is it Elisha um, in the Old Testament? You remember how there was a widow who prepared a room for the prophet um, and such. And similarly here, Jesus is the greater prophet and he is housed during his time on earth uh, by people's homes. And Zacchaeus was the one that God had chosen to be the host that day. Spurgeon, Spurgeon writes this, Who is the one here now who will take Jesus in? A stranger from the country, perhaps. There is no preaching place in your village. The gospel is not often proclaimed within miles of the place where you live, and few people go to hear it when it is preached. That is all the more reason why Jesus must come to your house, for he means to have your best room, or that old shed of yours, or that big barn, that the gospel may be preached there. There is a divine necessity laid upon him to have your heart for himself, so that he may come and dwell with you and make your house his headquarters, where his disciples may go forth to attack the enemy where you live, and that all in your region may know that the true salvation army has come there, and that the captain of our salvation has himself come to make his abode in your house and your heart. End quote there. Spurgeon seems to uh, to kind of apply this to us because there may have been people at his time um, who, uh, you know, maybe maybe within miles of where they lived, there was no church or people really preaching the gospel. And Spurgeon here seems to be saying, um, just as Jesus uh, made his place and uh, kind of used Zacchaeus's house as his headquarters here for a bit, maybe Jesus is wanting you to do that with your house and make it a base of operations, maybe for somebody to preach there. And so Christ works through the preacher, right, to preach um, salvation in Jesus. And so in, in that sense, Jesus is maybe wanting to use your home uh, to be a place where he can proclaim the gospel of salvation to lost sinners. Um, it's an interesting concept that Spurgeon uh, brings up there. Okay, so the second big point is um, where he, t- so the first part is about the necessity. The second part Spurgeon says here, the second major point um, uh, is this, let us inquire whether there is such a necessity in reference to ourselves. Um, so he asked the question, first of all, are you willing to receive Christ at once? He, he writes this, do you long and sigh that Christ might be yours? Then you shall surely have him. Are you earnestly anxious to be reconciled to God by Jesus Christ? Then you may have that great blessing at once. Are you thirsting after righteousness? Then you shall be filled for what say the scriptures. Let him who is thirsty come. And lest anybody should say, Oh, but there is some preparation implied in that word thirst, and I am afraid that I do not thirst enough. What does the scripture further say? And whoever will, whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So Spurgeon is saying, listen, uh, just as as Christ um, had a necessity to come to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus received him, he's Call it, looking at us and saying, are you willing to receive Christ right now at once? The second question, he says, will you heartily receive Jesus? Will you joyfully embrace him and welcome him into your home? Thirdly, will you receive Christ, whatever the murmurers may say? Because remember, there were probably going to be some people, right? And there were people in Jesus's day um, who uh, said, you know, he, he welcomes sinners. He's a guest of this man who's a sinner, they were murmuring about it. Spurgeon writes, this, writes, can you bear that? Can, can you dare that? Because if Christ comes to your house and heart, you must expect that he will bring his cross with him. Are you willing to have Christ, 
cross and all and say, let the murmurers say what they will and do what they will. My mind is made up. Christ for me. Christ for me. I cannot give him up. And so that's a good question for us. Will you receive Christ, whatever the murmurers may say? Because when we bring in, when we welcome Jesus, he brings his cross with him. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, having that cross in the room can make people uncomfortable, right? And you, you understand I'm speaking metaphorically there, but Christ is going to bring that with him. And there are going to be murmurs who come and, and mock. And are we ready for that? Fourthly, he says, will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord? Uh, Spurgeon writes this or, or was preaching this. He writes, um, now, are you willing to give up all to Christ and let him be, your, be Lord over you? Are you willing to do what he bids you? as he bids you, when he bids you, and simply because he bids you? For verily I say unto you, you cannot have Christ for your Savior unless you also have him as your Lord. He must rule over us as well as forgive us. He continues, sins must be given up, evil practices must be forsaken. You must follow after holiness and endeavor in all things to imitate your Savior who has left you an example that you should follow in his steps. Are you ready for that? Because if you are, then Christ is ready to stay at your house and to dwell in your heart. And lastly, he asked this last question, will you be prepared, be prepared to defend him? Are you prepared to live in accordance with his ways and to defend him uh, before the world? Uh, thirdly here, a third major point is reminding you of what will happen if Christ comes to stay in your house. Remember, he stayed in Zacchaeus' house. What will happen to you if he comes and stays in your house? Well, first of all, you must be ready to meet objections at home. People are going to object, right? People, you're going to have problems. You will face persecution to some extent. Secondly, he says, is your house fit for him to enter and abide there? Spurgeon writes this, I know some houses where my Lord could not lodge for a single night. The table, the talk, the whole surroundings would be so uncongenial to him. Are you prepared then to put away everything that would displease him and to have your house cleansed of all that is evil? You cannot expect the Lord Jesus to come into your house if you invite the devil to come too. Christ would not remain in the same heaven with the devil. As soon as Satan sinned, he hurled him out of the holy place. He could not endure to have a sinful spirit, the spirit of evil there, and he will not come and live in your house if you make provision for the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and all those evil things that he abhors. Are you prepared, by his grace, to make a clean sweep of these things? He will not come to you on any other terms. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? If you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, then Whenever he comes into your house, right, and you're welcoming him as Zacchaeus welcomed Christ into his house, is our house and our home life and our whole lives, are they congenial to him? What would displease him, right? And he brings that vivid example. Christ could not remain in the same heaven with the devil. As soon as Satan sinned, he kicked him out, right? He kicked him out. And similarly for us, is there something that we allow in But we forget we're dragging Christ into that because we've welcomed him into our house. Is there something in our house or in our home life or in our hearts that we are allowing in that um, we need to be reminded Jesus is here? Jesus is here. Is this congenial to Jesus? Because I'm in him and he's in me. Thirdly, he says this, we must admit none who would grieve our guest. 
Spurgeon writes, My Lord loves not to dwell in families where Eli is at the head of the household and where the children and young people live as they like. If he comes to your house, he will want you to be like Abraham, of whom he said, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. If he comes to your house, you must ask him to come in the same way that he came to the house of the jailer at Philippi. How was that? I have often heard half of that passage quoted without the context. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, and your house. Many leave out those last three words, and your house. But what a mercy it is when all in the house, as well as the head of the family, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you not wish that it may be so in your house? Do you not ardently desire it? I trust that you do. So here Spurgeon is calling us to um, in, to look at our family. Maybe we've got children or a spouse or whoever's in our family, and we want them to be believers in Jesus too, right? And, and we want them to, um, uh, to, to honor the Lord as well. Um, so welcome. So the whole family welcomes Jesus in, not just the head of the household, not just Zacchaeus, but we want Zacchaeus's whole family to welcome Jesus into the home. And similarly with our family, we in our in our house we want not simply us to believe in Jesus and welcome him in. We want everybody else in the house as well to welcome him in as well. Jesus loves to save families, not simply individuals. He does save individuals, but he also, in a wonderful way, often expands that and saves families as well to welcome Jesus in by saving faith. Fourthly and lastly here, I want to read to you, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes into your house, you must entertain him. Uh, Spurgeon writes, he needs no riches at your hands, yet he wants the best that you have. What is the best that you have? Why, your heart, your soul. Give him your heart. Give him your life. Give him your very self. If you had to entertain the queen, if she had promised to come and spend an evening with you, I will guarantee that you would be fidgeting and worrying for weeks about what you should get for such an occasion. And if you have but little means, you would try to get the very best that you could. Uh, such a true, isn't it? And you think about Spurgeon, right? When he's writing about the queen, he's writing about Queen Victoria. It's a good reminder to us because Spurgeon preached in Victorian England. Uh, queen Victoria, right? Who's got the, you know, there's movie, a movie, there was a show, a, I think a British PBS show, right? Made about Queen Victoria. That's the queen during Spurgeon's time. You know, this is Spurgeon preached in the era of, uh, I guess, maybe Charles Dickens and those kinds of guys in, in England. So this would have been a big deal. If the queen wanted to come to your house, you would have been worried to death about trying to welcome her and do everything with the appropriate protocol in order to honor her position and station in life. And isn't that the way we should be wanting to welcome and entertain Jesus in our house to have communion with him? Uh, Spurgeon closes here. He says here, how welcome he ought always to be when he comes as our blessed Savior to put away our sin and change our nature and honor us with his royal company and keep and preserve us even to the end that he may take us up and our children too to dwell at his right hand forever. That's a great way to end, isn't it? We want the King Jesus, when he enters into our homes and into our lives, to save us, our children, 
and, and that we would dwell with him forever. And we want to entertain him here in, in this life and to, and to spend eternity with him in the next. I thought that was a very, very beautiful sermon um, there um, where, where Spurgeon there is, uh, is giving us some great instruction about Zacchaeus' story and life and uh, some, some great things to meditate upon. Um, lastly, I want to read to you a portion here. So we're now in chapter 20 here. Uh, this is uh, when Jesus is asked about the resurrection by the Sadducees, right? They come to him and they try to throw out this parable of a, of a woman who marries seven brothers. And um, they all die. And you've got to remember the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And they also only believed that the first five books of the Bible were scripture. So they did not believe in all the other parts of the Old Testament, just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is scripture, and they thought it doesn't teach the resurrection, and so they were trying to use this this uh, example. And so they said uh, a woman marries seven brothers at different times in their life, in her life, right? They all die. So whose husband will she, who will be her husband in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be? And for they all had her as wife. And they had some conceptions about the resurrection. And Jesus here beautifully defends the resurrection and describes it um, in this passage, Luke 20, 27 through 40. And uh, here, I want to read J.C. Ryle and what he says here as we, this is the last section we'll read today. He says, we see, uh, thirdly, because there's been other points he's talked about in this uh, section from Ryle, but in these verses, something of the true character of the saint's existence in the world to come. We read that our Lord said to the Pharisees, but that is not the way it will be in the age to come, for those worthy of being raised from the dead won't be married then, and they will never die again. In these respects, they are like angels. They are children of God raised up to new life. Two things are abundantly clear from this description respecting the saints in glory. For one thing, their happiness is not a carnal happiness, but a spiritual one. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. The glorified body shall be very unlike what it is now. It shall no longer be a clog and a hindrance to the believer's better nature. It shall be a fit habitation for a glorified soul. For another thing, their happiness shall be eternal. They can die no more. No births shall be needed to supply the constant waste caused by death. Weakness and sickness and death and infirmity shall be no more at all. The curse shall be clean removed. Death himself shall die. The nature of what we call heaven is a subject which should engage our thoughts, which should often engage our thoughts. Few subjects in religion are so calculated to show the utter folly of unconverted men and the dreadful danger in which they stand. A heaven where all the joy is spiritual would surely be no heaven to an unconverted soul. Few subjects are so likely to cheer and animate the mind of a true Christian. The holiness and spiritual mindedness which he follows after in this life will be the very atmosphere of his eternal abode. The cares of family relationships shall no longer distract his mind. The fear of death shall no longer bring him into bondage. Then let him press on and bear his cross patiently. Heaven will make amends for all. We see lastly in these verses the antiquity of belief in a resurrection. Our Lord shows that it was the belief of Moses. And that's very important, by the way, as I take a quick thing here. Remember, they did not believe in the other parts of the Bible. So Jesus quotes to them from one of the first five books of the Bible to show them that the resurrection is true. 
Um, our, so continuing here with Ryle, our Lord shows that it was the belief of Moses that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the burning bush. Faith in a resurrection and a life to come has been to universal belief of all God's people from the beginning of the world. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and all the patriarchs were men who looked forward to a better inheritance than they had here below. They looked for a city which had foundations. They desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Hebrews eleven ten through 16 Let us anchor our own souls firmly on this great foundation truth that we shall all rise again. Whatever ancient or modern Sadducees may say, let us believe firmly that we are not made like the beasts that perish, and that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Acts 24.15 The recollection of this truth will cheer us in the day of trial and comfort us in the, in the, in the hour of death. We shall feel that though earthly prosperity fails us, there is a life to come where there is no change. We shall feel that though worms destroy our body, yet in the flesh we shall see God. Job 19.26 We shall not lie always in the grave. Our God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Well, that's, uh, that's it. Our God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And we will see that next week in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in uh, Luke as we begin reading Luke 22, 23, 24. And next week we will also begin John chapter 1 and 2. And, uh, you know, so we're getting into the really good parts of Luke, the last three chapters here coming up next week. And uh, then we start John's gospel, which is, uh, well, quite a quite a, a packed book, quite a packed book of, of gospel truth and riches. Um, that's going to be uh, very difficult to, to probably pick and choose what we talk about in there because it's so, so good. So, um, yeah, thank you for listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging to you, and I thank you uh, for uh, reading through the New Testament together with us. I hope this has been encouraging to you. I hope to hear from you, too. Um, if you have any questions or thoughts, um, you know, just let me know uh, how you're enjoying the podcast and how you're enjoying reading the Bible. And I hope that it's, uh, that it's encouraging to you. Keep reading. Take care. God bless. <laughs>